Welcome, Dave Cody, uh, to this event. Uh, you know, I was a young pup. I mean, and DJ says three decades. It's almost three decades ago. No, it's not, you know, not really not that long ago. But many, many years ago that I met Dave for the first time. I was a young manager at General Electric. Uh, Dave was the, the CEO of uh, GE Appliances back then in Louisville, Kentucky. And, uh, you know, he had a really phenomenal reputation. He was an executor power uh, supreme. He got things done. He was an incredibly analytical and insightful leader. And, you know, I, honestly, he could be a bit intimidating at times. And so I kind of piled that away in the back of my head and I've followed his career since then, right? He went to TRW for a couple of years before the, he split the company up. And then really 2002, he joined Honeywell as CEO. And that journey has been really phenomenal. And, uh, and I'm sure Dave will uh, share some of this information in the next few minutes, but over the course of his tenure as CEO, 16 years tenure, he basically, the, the, the shareholder returns, total shareholder returns were about 8X. Uh, from the time he took over the company, uh, compared to the S&P 500, he outstripped uh, the, the Honeywell performance outstripped the S&P 500 by about, I think, 400 basis points, which is remarkable. No, uh, sorry, 400 uh, percent, which is remarkable, right? And so there was some fundamental outperformance. But what stuck in my mind, honestly, is something that uh, dating myself again, going back to the Great Recession in 2008-2009. As some of you may remember, it was a pretty difficult period in the uh, globally, not just in the U.S. And all of us were panicking. I was a CEO of a small company and we were panicking about what to do in this recession. And then we started watching the reports coming out of Honeywell where there weren't these mass layoffs. We were seeing in lots of different places. There was these very interesting furloughs. There were some interesting sacrifices collectively the company made. And over time, as you watched what happened in Honeywell, it was very clear that the path Dave and the leadership team there took really stood them in good stead coming out of the recession. And really, if you go back and read this book, Winning Now, Winning Later, which we will be sharing with the attendees on this uh, call. Uh, there's some fascinating lessons out there. So that's been kind of in my mind ever since the pandemic started. And so I've been wanting to bring Dave on to this, uh, uh, this forum for a long time. So without further ado, I'm really excited to welcome Dave uh, and have him uh, really uh, kind of jump in and tell a story. The way the format's gonna work is I want Dave uh, to give a little bit of an introduction beyond what I just shared. And then I have a series of questions. Uh, I'm gonna ask Dave, there's a couple of questions I've gotten from the audience and uh, we'll open up to the audience as well as you go along. So with, without further ado, Dave, over to you. Dave, you're on mute, we can't hear you. Sorry about that. Uh, nice to connect with you again. And um, sorry to hear that I could be intimidating. Certainly I wasn't trying to be, but I guess, uh, I guess that happens sometimes. And yes, I'm very proud of my uh, Honeywell experience. And we uh, beat the S&P 500 by two and a half X over uh, 16 years. And I find it uh, particularly intriguing given that uh, Jack Welch fired me in June of 1999. He told me that I had to be out of the company by year end. Uh, I asked him, what did you see that you didn't like or didn't see that you wish you had? And his voice elevated and he said, you don't understand, you have to be out by year end. And I said, no, I get it, uh, but I think I'm better than you think I am. And if there's something I need to address, I'd like to know what it is. And his voice elevated again saying, uh, you need to be out by year end. And I said, okay, okay, I got it, I got it. And then we just talked about everything else for the remaining, 
remaining hour of dinner. So to go from that to what we were able to accomplish at Honeywell, yeah, I'm really, I'm really proud of it, given how dysfunctional Honeywell was, and I, I won't go into all the detail because a lot of that's in the book, but as bad as it looked from the outside, I can tell you it was even worse inside. So with that, why don't I uh, go to whatever questions might be on your mind. Dave, thank you very much. I mean, there's, you know, first of all, I read the book the day it came out. So I was very excited to, uh, to read it and kind of listen to some of the stories or read some of the stories you talk about there. But the one thing that stands in my mind is just the title of the book, right? Winning now, winning later, right? Eat short term to live long term, right? There's different phraseology you can apply to it. You know, the way I, just, the way I define that, not the, the way I share that with people is like, hey, it's easy to say hard to do. Right. And so as yeah. you think about the people on this call, they're operating managers, they're leaders, they're investors, you know, how, what is the advice you give them on balancing the short and long term, right? Because there's some things you have to do now today that allow you to survive and thrive for the future. So what, what advice can you share with the, with the, with the folks? Well, um, it'd probably be helpful to back up to a fundamental principle that uh, we ran Honeywell with and that I first discovered on my own like 30 years ago. And I refer to it as accomplishing two seemingly conflicting things at the same time. And I used to refer to it as my any ninny theory, as in any ninny could do just one thing. Success came from being able to accomplish both of the seemingly conflicting things. The way I ran across it is um, I was given responsibility for an inventory reduction task force. I knew nothing about inventory. I was the CFO at appliances at the time. The one thing I did know is I'd seen a lot of failures. So I pulled together a, a cross-functional team and posed that question is to say, well, if we're gonna fail, let's at least fail differently. Why has everything, why has every inventory reduction task force I've ever seen failed? And there was this grizzled manufacturing leader who said, well, the problem is uh, we reduce inventory, customer delivery goes to hell, uh, customers complain, Salesforce screams, and then all the inventory comes flooding back in. So he said, I think we need to have two goals, inventory reduction and customer delivery. And I can remember being a little annoyed at the time, thinking, God, what are you doing? You know, we're here to reduce inventory, not to... But the more I thought about it, I said, God, you know, that actually makes some sense. And as a result of that, we said, okay, what's the root cause of both? Decided it was cycle time. We reduced the overall cycle time over four years from 18 weeks to two weeks. This is from the point, say a dishwasher left a distribution center to the point where you replaced that specific dishwasher in the distribution center. And it resulted in an inventory reduction of 50%, saving $500 million and customer delivery improved. And I thought I had an original discovery and I would go around everywhere and uh, talk about it. And one of the things that surprised me after I you know, kind of got further in my career and did a lot more reading of things was, it is not an original discovery. I don't know how many centuries old it is, but I certainly wasn't the first one. So if this is real and it works, why does no one do it? And the answer gets back to what 
you just said is it's difficult. It's harder. People want to know what's the one thing you want me to do, boss. And every boss feels compelled to say, yep, here's the one thing I want you to do. We can't lose focus. But as a result of that, there's always something on the other side that gets lost. And think about it as uh, if you want some examples, uh, do you want great prices and margins or do you want big volume? Do you want people closest to the action empowered to make quick decisions or do you want good control so nothing bad happens? Do you wanna have low internal functional costs for HR, legal, finance, IT, or do you wanna have great internal customer service? Do you wanna have quick hiring so that positions are filled quickly or do you wanna have only great people? And in every case, you're trying to accomplish both. Well. That same thing is true of short-term, long-term. And there's a tendency for CEOs and leaders to say, what's the one thing? And look, I can't do long-term because uh, I'm being pressured for short-term. And it's a feeling that things are, that they are mutually exclusive as opposed to mutually reinforcing. So what I try to do in the book is explain, all right, how do you do that? How do you accomplish both at the same time? Because, like I said, the two are mutually reinforcing. If you don't invest for the long term, eventually the long term becomes the short term and you're, you're just screwed. You just die. On the other side of it, if you don't produce some kinds of results in the short term, your bosses and investors say, uh, hey, great, uh, that things are going to be wonderful in three years, but we'll see you in three years. And even worse, is you find yourself wedded to a strategy where you're not expecting to see anything for three years. And as a result of that, you really have no short-term inch stones, not milestones, but inch stones to be looking at to make sure that you're making the kind of progress and seeing the results that you should. And as a result, there's a very good chance you end up there three years from now saying, what the hell? I thought this thing was gonna be great. Uh, nothing happened. No customers are interested. Why is that? So that's why I wrote the book. I was getting very frustrated uh, reading all the short-termism articles, making it sound like it's uh, mutually exclusive. So I found that irritating, especially given that concept. I also have to say I got a lot of encouragement from uh, two interesting sources, uh, Barack Obama and uh, Hank Paulson both of whom at various points said, hey, you really need to write a book about this stuff because no one talks about any of it. Uh, you know, how to run meetings, how to lead uh, so that you get the best from everyone, that sort of thing. And I said, all right, I'll give it a try. I can promise you it is a lot of work. <laughs> Heck, a lot imagine. more than I ever expected. I can imagine, I can imagine. It's interesting when I listen to what you were just saying, you know, those of you who, uh, those are the people on this phone and otherwise who know me, uh, every time somebody asks a question, like just like the ones you pose, right? Do you do this versus that? And my answer to them always is yes, right? Because it's like, you know, it's, it's you can't do one or the other, you have exactly. to do yes both. So the, the hard part is managing this uh, thing. You know, but- Exactly, because that's what causes you to look for the root cause. Correct. Instead of just addressing symptoms, then you start to look to the root cause to figure out how do I address whatever the root cause is of all this to make both better? That's right, that's right. But you know, to go along with that, there's something you said a little while ago when you talked about three years from now, your boss will look back or somebody will look back three years from now. 
and I, I hate to put things this way, but there was a phrase in the former employer that you and I worked for, uh, where sometimes people in leadership positions would say things like, it's the next guy's problem, right? Kicking the can <laughs> down the road, right? I mean, I, I heard that phrase back in the mid nineties when I was there you know, uh, at that company that I will not mention. But the whole next, <laughs> next guy's problem is, is kind of endemic to this short versus long-term, right? People want to kind of look good today and leave all the dirty work for somebody tomorrow. And I think that's the challenge. I think sometimes I see, uh, you know, it's hard to manage. And as a CEO, that's got to be hard because you're sitting atop this entire company, in your case, a $30, $40 billion company with all these different divisions trying to kind of make sure people don't make those mistakes because, you know, you don't want that to happen. The next guy's problem, right? Yeah, actually, uh, that was going back to that old company. That was one of the things I disliked culturally. The other thing I disliked was that when you went in a new job, uh, like 90% of your effort was pointing out how the previous guy was an idiot and had the wrong strategy and everything was wrong. And both of those I felt were just wrong because I could see that I was doing something in a, in a position uh, getting things set so that long-term it would be better. And a new guy would come in and uh, despite the success I'd had, uh, kind of point to things and say, God, you know, this is a mess. This is wrong. We need to stop this. And all that stuff you'd seen built was just disappeared. So yeah, we tried to address both of those in Honeywell. And certainly my, uh, I'd say employees saw me doing it because we had four big legacy issues. One was a supremely aggressive, unhealthy accounting. And look at it this way, is over a decade, our free cash flow conversion was 69%, meaning that for every dollar of income, there was only 69 cents of cash. Uh, in other words, a lot of bookkeeping. So there's a lot we had to address there. We had a, a big underfunded pension plan. Our, Funding was something like 78%, which required um, some work. We had a bunch of unrecognized asbestos liabilities from two different sources. And we had environmental problems that had been accumulated over a hundred years as a hundred year old chemical company would have. And the previous strategy had been to fight it in court until you lose, then pay. And we took a different approach and said, no, we want all these things resolved. So at the same time that we took our market cap from 20 billion to 120 billion over that uh, 16 years, we spent $10 billion addressing all those issues that I just mentioned. And as a result of that, uh, my successor ended up with a company where he wasn't having to worry about time bombs and uh, legacy issues, which is one of the things that we wanted uh, to accomplish. And the nice thing about it, Darius uh, Domchek a terrific leader and I couldn't be happier with what he's doing. And he would acknowledge that, yeah, it's nice not having to deal with uh, all that stuff and he can focus on just growth. So the point you're making, it has to start at the top. If you're not starting there, addressing issues that everybody in the company can see and knows exist, it's really tough to get everybody else to look at it and say, okay, I need to address it. Uh, once you've kind of established your own, uh, let's say, walk the talk, which is a phrase uh, I use a lot, it's easier to get everybody else to say, okay, what are your issues? Bring them up. 
let's make sure we address them. Every one of these businesses, we do strategic plans. What are, the, what are your legacy issues and how do we make sure we address them? And you do that, it doesn't take that long. People kind of want to talk about, hey, there's this, here's what I'm dealing with is biting me in the butt all the time and I could use some help to uh, finally get it fixed. And once they see you're doing it and that you're encouraging them speaking up and then you actually do something about those things, they just put you in, in a much better spot for people thinking about, yeah, gotta, gotta fix legacy stuff so that we're ready and prepared for a terrific long-term. No, that's great. I mean, I think that's always been a challenge for almost any leader, any organization, and certainly a company that large as Honeywell is always the thing. Uh, you know, some of the questions- Well, I can also promise you, Vivek, uh, none of my investors were cheering me on with me addressing any of those four items. I can imagine. I, I got no support from investors on that in the beginning. In their mind, it's just a drag, right? So when you, when you think about some of the stuff you just mentioned, I'm, I'm looking down at some of the questions that have been coming in to, to me. You know, there's this whole theme about what, what, what's going on now, what's happening 2020, heading into 2021. And there's an interesting uh, statement you made in your book, Dave, and I'm sorry, I'm reading, looking down on my phone to read it. Businesses would leave the recession in the internet, right? You referenced, I think, some economists who said this or something. And I think this is interesting, right? Uh, and the way I yeah. interpret that is Libra does not change its stripes just because things have changed, right? What, who you were before the recession is probably going to be who you are after the recession. So if you think from that perspective, um, what, is the, what is the advice or what's the message you have for some of the leaders on the phone, right? Uh, what, on, the, on the webinar, what, what advice can you give them in terms of before and after, right? How should I think about it? Yeah. Well, there's a lot to talk about there. And uh, I guess I'd start with uh, when you're talking, look, listening to the media or listening to economists. Um, I like to say that with uh, those folks, futurists, uh, they don't need to be right. They just need you to listen to them. So you have to really think for yourself. And I talk a lot about the need for independent thinking and how independent thinking is a lot more rare than being smart. And that means when you're hearing all this and the world is like uh, dumping all their troubles on you, it feels like, and employees are clamoring and staff is panicking. If there's ever a time for a leader to keep their head, it's then. And that means being able to think for yourself. And one of the things that really struck me going through the uh, Great Recession with all kinds of, uh, this is gonna be an L-shaped recovery, a U-shaped recovery, a V-shaped recovery. And you sit there trying to figure out what letter do you wanna pick? And I heard one economist say, well, I think it's gonna depend on the industry and however you go in is likely how you're gonna come out. And I thought that makes a hell of a lot of sense. If you see a 40% reduction in your sales, there's a very good chance that when things get better, you'll see a 30% increase really fast. And if you see a 2% reduction in your sales because you're a longer cycle business, you're probably not going to see a 30% increase coming out of the recession. So we started planning accordingly uh, using that. 
And I tried to establish, I guess, several precepts that I wanted to uh, make sure that I ran the company with. And one of the big ones was just, I didn't want to abandon uh, short-term, long-term thinking just because we were in the middle of a recession. So we approached it um, a couple of ways. The first one was to say, uh, there's three constituencies we got to manage, customers, investors, and employees. Of those three, we have to focus on customers first, whether it's the investments we've promised to make, delivery, quality, whatever it is, because if we don't do a great job for customers, both employees and investors are going to lose. Then we looked at it and said, okay, when it comes to um, how we think about the recession, uh, do I believe this is an L-shaped recovery? And the answer was no. I didn't think this was a forever kind of thing because even the Great Depression ended and it could have ended sooner, except that we didn't do the things that we should have uh, back then. So I decided to kind of go with what that economist had said and said, all right, if that's the case, then I need to be thinking about both labor and suppliers in a way that allows me to be able to respond to a V-shaped recovery in any of those businesses where it's going to exist. And that's why we went with furloughs instead of layoffs, because uh, layoffs in a recession, I just couldn't make sense of it. And you look at it and say, okay, so uh, you lay off 5,000 people. You basically, between Warnack, Severance, just processing, takes you six months before they're all gone. So takes you, you pay them six months to do nothing. Then, so six months of savings to get that money back. And then a six-month return where you say, okay, now this is uh, money that I received. In which case, the recovery's already begun. And now you're having to hire a bunch of people again. And you're not necessarily, I'd say oftentimes, not going to get those same people back. And I remember talking to my own folks and saying, so if I had a deal where I said, uh, hey, we're going to spend six months to build a factory. For the first, second six months, we'll get our money back. The third six months, we'll uh, uh, get a return. And then we close it down. Would we build that factory? The answer was no. Says, yeah, exactly. So why do we do this with people and think it's different? Well, we did the same thing with suppliers. So think of um, uh, uh, spare parts for jet engines. Uh, airline traffic goes down 6%. What's the airline do in terms of reducing spare parts inventory? They reduce their orders on Honeywell by 30%. Well, now we have to adjust our inventory we reduce our orders to our suppliers by 50%. And you get down to the tier three, tier four guy, I mean, they get absolutely whacked. Now what happens when you get that V-shaped recovery? That poor tier two, tier three supplier is seeing increases of 100 and over 100% in demand, which means given that they've probably done layoffs themselves, didn't plan for supply, they can't do it. So now you have customers double ordering, triple ordering, which makes it even worse. So we started working with suppliers in any V-shaped industry to say, okay, how do we get first access to supply? Either by paying some money up front, agreeing to a long-term deal, uh, whatever we could come up with that was of significance to the supplier. 
So that when we came out of that uh, recession in the V-shaped recovery, man, we just absolutely took off. So I'd say those are some of the bigger learnings from the, oh, and by the way, we also kept investing in our long-term programs. Uh, all of the R&D programs that we had where we committed to customers, or we thought we could really steal a march on competitors, uh, we kept investing. And I think because of that combination, we were able to way outperform in the recovery. We held our own during the recession. If you look at our performance versus peers, we were fine, a little bit better, but not outstandingly so, uh, although significantly better than we'd done in any other previous recession. And as a result of the way we handled it, when we came out of the recession, we were just gangbusters. That's perfect. That's always a hard lesson. I remember uh, I was running a small uh, instrumentation company back then, and we were watching you from afar. And we actually practiced the same thing, right? So we wound up taking pay cuts. We didn't do uh, layoffs. We wound up doing managed furloughs. Uh, we had a European operation, as some of my European colleagues on the phone right now know, this whole notion of short work, I think is uh, what it's called in Europe. Uh, that went into effect, and we were able to keep everybody, and we came out really fast. Of the recessions, yep. these sounds like simple. These sound like simple things to do, but it's, you have to have intestinal fortitude to kind of not do what everybody's doing back then. Uh, well, Dave, what I, I found uh, interesting is, uh, as a result of uh, what we did in the recession, uh, Harvard Business School wrote a case study on furloughs and how we did it, and affecting benefits rather than laying off employees. And if uh, you take a look at the recent recession, there weren't that many layoffs. Most right. people were going with furloughs and 401k reductions, all the sort of things that we were semi-pioneering for a large company uh, 10 years ago. So I found that uh, without any attribution, uh, actually kind of gratifying to see, rewarding to yep. see. I think it's a smarter way to do things. Absolutely. Uh, Dave, I got a couple of questions coming in from the outside. So Prabhu uh, Sundarajan, uh, Prabhu, I think your mic is activated. Uh, you want to go ahead and ask your question, Prabhu? Absolutely. Thank you, Vivek. Hello, Dave. How are you? Uh, Prabhu, Hi, you fine. Well. Thank you. And uh, definitely thank you for all the teachings in 2008 recession. We tried to apply it in, around this time and came out successful. So thank you. Dave, my question is two parts. One of the big learnings you teach, you taught us when you were in Honeywell was the idea of having great positions in good industries. And 2021, January, we're in a very different situation with uncertainties and COVID, a new president coming in. The first part of the question is just get your pulse on where you see the market industrials going. And the second part of the question is, um, what is your advice to the CEOs and GMs out there trying to weather this, uh, this uncertainty, especially around uh, this market by using new age technologies like data and aftermarket services and so on and so forth. Thank you very much. Sure, I'm, uh, I mean, while there's always a reason to be concerned about uh, the economy, no matter what's going on, because something can always uh, bite you. Uh, I'm actually bullish on the economy for 21 and 22. Uh, government, I'd say, is more likely to engage in bigger deficit spending than not. We can argue if that's smart for the long term or not, but I think it's certainly gonna be good for the uh, short term. And with the vaccine uh, coming through, if you take a look at uh, personal savings, I saw a chart uh, a couple of days ago 
that showed personal savings, which historically has been in the four to five trillion range, is running about 11 or 12 trillion right now, which would say that difference is about 25% of GDP. And to me, that says there's just an incredible amount of firepower that's out there. And even industries that have been negatively affected, uh, cruise lines, airlines, et cetera, uh, hotels, once the vaccine is available, I wouldn't be surprised to see them providing some all-star type deals for customers just to get everybody moving again. And given the savings rate, they're not gonna be able to resist. And I mean, I wouldn't be able to either. And starting to use all these services again, which I think is just gonna be terrific for the economy. So I, I actually think things are gonna go pretty darn uh, well. When it comes to uh, your question on services and aftermarket, I, I'd frame it less in, um, uh, is this what you do in a tough time? Then I would, this is something that you ought to do all the time. And if we take a look even at uh, Vertiv, for example, the company I'm associated with today, um, whatever, you, whatever they spend on first, our customers spend on first cost, over the next 10 years, they'll spend that same amount again, just on service, parts, um, <coughs> preventive maintenance, uh, all of just the normal service checks that you gotta do. And I think it's a mistake for any company not to be looking at as an opportunity, whether you're in a tough time or uh, a good time. You, you ought to be doing it because it's a great source of growth. A good way to make sure that you understand what kind of problems and issues your customers are facing, because that can inform your uh, product decisions. And it keeps you closer to your customers so that they look at you as a value add. So uh, I, like, I like it generally on all those dimensions. Sorry, can you hear me? No, I can okay, now. Okay, great. I guess the other question uh, I have for you guys, uh, actually, if, if you don't mind, uh, I'm a little confused as to why I'm gonna stop sharing for a second here. I got some audio, uh, video difficulties. I think the question, uh, the other question that's coming to me uh, on, this, uh, on this topic, uh, Dave, on the 2021 topic is in the context of thinking about uh, the changes that are happening out here. Do you, as from the vertical look, uh, from your vertical position or just being around the industry folks, are you seeing trends and themes that are going to be big going forward or is it just something that uh, is just the recovery is gonna take some things? Are there other technologies, are there changes that are happening that are gonna be interesting to watch uh, going forward? Uh, I wouldn't say I see any new trends or technologies that are being kicked off because of uh, uh, the COVID recession. I would say uh, you're gonna see industrials are already recovering and you'll see that continue to occur 21, 22 and uh, on. Uh, the big dynamic or trend that was already going on and is just gonna keep accelerating is uh, the increasing uh, connection to digital to physical. And I often said that uh, this was going to be more difficult for companies than what had historically been a digital to digital experience. And you think about, okay, your iPhone connecting to a website somewhere. Um, 
if it doesn't work or there's a bug in it for a couple of weeks or a patch has to be sent. And no one, it, it's irritating, but no one cares all that much. And as we start to get onto the industrial side, the digital to physical transition or management, hugely different because stuff has to work. And that's a trend that I think is going to continue. The industrial internet is real. I'm a big believer in it. As you know, we positioned Honeywell that way. And of our 23,000 engineers, about 50% of them were software engineers as we started to progress over that 16 years. And my uh, successor, Darius Adamczyk, has accelerated that. So that's something that just keeps on going and figuring out how do you use software to make your product or service that much more valuable, easier to use for your customers is uh, gonna just keep accelerating. You know, I got a couple more questions coming in uh, instead of me reading them out. Um, why don't I just call on a couple of people? Uh, the question from Leo, Leo Stevens, are you still on the phone? Uh, maybe you can uh, activate Leo's mic, uh, DJ, and also Carlos had a question. So uh, while, they, while uh, we get DJ and, uh, uh, sorry, for DJ to activate their mics, um, uh, the question I would have for you is in the context of performance culture, right? And I'll get, that'll give some time for us to uh, get uh, Leo and Carlos on the phone. Uh, in terms of performance culture, again, it's one of those things which is easy to say, hard to do, Dave. Right? Uh, how do you kind of make that happen in the context of some of the changes going on and get people along? Yeah, uh, it's really kind of interesting because uh, just like you don't run into any company that ever says, uh, no, we don't care about customers, customer service really doesn't matter to us. Uh, you never run into a company that says, uh, that says, no, we're not really a performance-based culture. We don't, don't really care. So everybody says the same stuff. Uh, why is it so different though, as you go from company to company? Customer service, obviously, even though everybody knows and will say it's important, uh, they certainly don't act that way and their customers don't feel that way. And the same thing is true when it comes to a performance culture. Everybody says, yes, you know, we're performance oriented, but they don't act that way. So uh, I'm a big believer in, uh, I always say it's two things, people and process. So the first thing that you gotta have is people who act that way, including the leader. And the thing that I always point to there is hunger. And I, I was oftentimes asked by investors, hey, what's the thing that's gonna possibly throw Honeywell off track here? And what they were looking for me to do was pick an industry or a macro trend or a country. And I never did that. I always said, uh, if we ever lose our hunger, and that starts with me. And if I ever lose my hunger, then I need to leave the job because you have to wake up every day wanting to beat your peers. You just do. And you need to make sure that you act that way, that you demand that kind of performance and that you hire people who can do that. And that the organization sees you rewarding people who do deliver and do it in the right way. And that people who don't get penalized in some way and they have to see it. And I was always, uh, I always took issue with uh, people who would say, uh, 
praise uh, publicly, criticize privately. And, you know, that sounds really nice, touchy-feely, HRE, new agey, all those kind of things that you like to put on it. But while you may feel better about yourself as a leader, and maybe the person who was criticized uh, feels better that it was done privately, the fact is you've got a bunch of people who were in that meeting with you who saw somebody not performing or not delivering, and they don't see anything coming of it. So what lesson do they learn from it? That it was okay. So I always felt like, no, praise publicly, criticize publicly. Doesn't mean you need to be a twit about it uh, and make somebody feel small or minimized or worthless as part of it. You don't need to be nasty, but it needs to be very clear to that leader and their entire team that no, this performance is substandard not acceptable. And if they don't do their job, then you're going to have to do yours. And yeah, sometimes I guess it can sound a little harsh. Uh, once you've done it for a while and you do it in the right way, again, not minimizing people, it's not that difficult. And people don't walk away feeling like uh, complete schlubs. They understand they got to deliver. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's always a hard part. People don't get how hard doing that, you know, public-private, public-public thing is. Uh, now that we got uh, Leo's uh, mic on, Leo, uh, go ahead with your question. Uh, instead of reading what you sent me, maybe you can just ask Dave the question. Sure, thank you, David. Appreciate the uh, the comments. They're very very enlightening. Uh, my basic question, and again, several people on this call, I'm getting a lot of feedback. I hope you guys aren't slow down for a second. Uh, the basic no, I think, question, yeah, go ahead. As a as an executive at the C level or the EVP level, um, we've been through the 2008 recession. We're now going through the the pandemic. What do you feel are are the key skill sets that senior leaders should have, um, and and be focusing on um, based on on your learnings over the over the time in the industry? And for example, you know, I'm thinking just recently I was reading where France shut down for two weeks and China for a week. And Ford had to stop production for 10 days because a certain microchip was, was unavailable. So my thought was, you know, senior leaders at Ford should have, have caught that and been aware. So I guess from your viewpoint, what are the skill sets or the mindsets? And I love your idea, by the way, of free thinking or thinking for yourself. So something along those lines. Hey, Dave, I muted you. So you may have to unmute yourself. Go ahead. The... Um... Uh, first of all, I like the, uh, uh, the support for independent thinking, because I really do think that's one of the things that's uh, generally missing. Uh, it is kind of interesting with every recession is uh, it seems like every leader can't wait to say, yeah, this recession is totally different than anything we've ever run into. And I would say that's 20% true, 80% not true. And it's always going to involve the same thing. You're going to have to do something about doing the best, like I said, for your customers for, uh, and figure out where the pain goes for investors and employees. How do you manage labor and material? Uh, those things are the same and they don't change. And yes, I would argue every recession is different. It's your recession is different when planes fly into a building, when it's caused financially, when it's caused by a healthcare crisis. But if you look at all of it, 80% of what you have to do is the same. 
The one thing that was really different, I'd say, in this recession, and I saw it happen with Vertiv all the time, was the footwork that you had to go through to try to keep plants open, really because of the total discombobulation of government at the local, state, or province, and country level. And it seemed like no matter what country we were in, some mayor could decide that they were gonna take a hard tack despite what anybody said. And all of a sudden our guys were having to figure out what the heck to do to be able to get product to customers. And that was one that's difficult to plan for because it's so arbitrary. And government I'd say was generally pretty arbitrary in terms of how they approach things this time through. Hopefully there'll be a lot of lessons learned there but they certainly didn't learn them during the course of this uh, pandemic. So that sort of thing did require a lot of adroit footwork. And I, I mean, I saw it happen in Vertiv. Our guys did a tremendous job. And I can't say I was even always aware of everything they were going through, but all of a sudden you'd be getting phone calls of, hey, do you know anybody that we could reach out to in India or Mexico or China or in Illinois? It was just nuts. And that's one hopefully we don't have to repeat and no amount of independent thinking could have predicted uh, any of that. You just had to say, all right, I just have to be really adroit in my footwork here if I'm gonna make this thing work. Excellent, thank you. Uh, we got a couple more questions in the Q&A panel. I'm gonna, uh, Carlos, if you're, I think your mic's on, if you wanna go ahead and ask a question to David or did you have to step away? Carlos, you're still there? Let me see if you can hear me now. Yeah, we can. Yes, go ahead. Yep. Oh, fantastic. Uh, so great session, David. Thank you for the time today. You know, one, one question. Can you hear me okay, by the way? Yes, yes. Okay, great. Yeah, one question I have, you know, as a former G exec and now with Baker Hughes, you know, we're constantly trying to develop our people into bigger and bigger independent thinking and self-sufficient leaders. Is there a particular way that you measure yourself or have measured yourself as you develop your talent on whether something is working or not for them or with them and how you've pivoted as you've done that, especially in a crisis? Yeah, I'd say when it comes to uh, people selection, I've always said uh, you do a bunch of work, bunch of homework, bunch of reference checks. You've watched them for a long time or you've done a great job of interviewing them and expect to only be right 70% of the time. There's just a bunch of intangibles there that are uh, tough to understand. Uh, the things that I used to look for, and I would say this to uh, all the leadership classes, and I talked to two or three of them a month, is that uh, they had to, that uh, career advancement was gonna require two things. Uh, the first one was they had to get results and get them in the right way. I didn't want a bunch of dead bodies hanging around and I didn't want uh, them shotting the long-term in order to make it. And I was very clear that uh, you had to be able to get results and that goes back to that uh, performance culture. But again, you had to do it in the right way and that that's one of the things that uh, I was always going to look at. And if there's one thing that used to frustrate me, it's when we would do our management resource reviews and we'd be uh, going through uh, someone's people and they'd say, 
well, uh, gee, this person is only doing an average job, but they've got terrific potential. I'd say, well, if they're not doing a good job with what they've got, why are they going to be better in a bigger job? Because uh, where they went to school, where they got their MBA, who their parents were, how well they speak and give a speech. If that's the case, then I don't think that's a basis of performance. So we were very big on saying where you went to school, whatever else, that gets you your first job. After that, you've got to be able to get results and get it in the right way. The second thing that I would look for, and I said this to, uh, again, every class, was that I wanted people who were self-aware and able to learn. Learn about themselves, learn about their businesses, learn about their people, understand situational leadership mattered. You couldn't have uh, the same approach to every single problem and uh, uh, every single group that you talk to. And the self-awareness to understand what their uh, personal issues were and how it could impact people and how they may need to modify their own leadership style to uh, make sure that they got the best out of all their people. And what you find is uh, there's a lot of folks who are you know, like the patterns of the world. They've got a certain way of doing something. If you fit into that mode of doing it, great. Uh, you'll do very fine there. But the world isn't made up of uh, just all George Pattons. And there's a difference between introverts and extroverts. Men and women participate differently. And being able to develop that realization that I need to be more self-aware of my own issues and my impact on the people that work with me in order to be able to get the best performance is the tougher thing to do of the two. And I would point that out to everyone saying, uh, you're getting 360s and in your 360s, uh, you'll, all the good stuff, you'll say, yep, absolutely. All the negative stuff, you'll have one of two reactions. One, they don't understand what it is I'm trying to do. Or two, I know who the son of a bitch is who said that. And I said, in both of those cases, uh, you have to really think about what they're saying because you're right, they may not be right, but they also could be right. So you need to take all that advice and put it into a four block. Good advice, bad advice. I take the advice, I reject the advice. Obviously to maximize the good advice you take and the bad advice you reject. And my point to him was only you can figure it out. And nobody can, we can coach and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, you have to figure this out for yourself. So I would look for people who could do those two things, get results and do it in the right way. And were they self-aware and did they understand their impact on others? And I found if you could get people who could do both of those things, you would end up with just much better results and a performance-oriented culture. That's Fantastic. great. That's great. Thank you. Thank you for the question, Carlos. Thanks for the answer. You know, we're almost out of time. We've got a couple of minutes left. I'm going to ask a classic 2020 question that came in on our Q&A uh, panel out here. This is by an anonymous attendee who says, Dave, what's your view of remote work and how effective companies can operate and build culture given everybody's, you know, working from home for the most part, right? So I thought it was a perfect ending for the 2020 uh, events uh, with that question. Uh, what do you think, Dave? I think it's a bad idea 
And this is one of those things that's uh, I'm sure will uh, catch me some grief from some, some people who are listeners. Uh, I worked very hard to eradicate that at Honeywell. And unless somebody had a medical issue, a family issue where, uh, and we had a, a work from home policy then to support those kinds of folks who were having an issue. This whole idea that human beings don't need to interact and that they can do everything remotely and the machine is so good nowadays that uh, you don't need to bump into people in the hall or have that normal casual conversation you do dissing their sports team and then oh, it causes you to think about something else. Uh, I think it's a mistake. And it also doesn't take into consideration uh, all those people who do show up every day. And so for example, in Honeywell, and I put this example in my book, out of our 135,000 people, we had 5,000 people working from home of which only a thousand of them were what I call legitimate. They had a medical family issue. The other 4,000 was because of weak need bosses who would look at it and say, uh, well, I wanna be new agey, HRE, all that kind of stuff. And didn't really say, no, I'm sorry, that's not what the job is. Uh, the other 10 folks show up every day and I need you here. And they just couldn't bring themselves uh, to do it. And we had the same discussion at my staff level where people were saying, well, you know, we need to be able to allow this because this is the new thing. And this is, uh, we need to make sure we hang on to these people. And I would say, well, what about the 130,000 people who do show up every day? who do do the commute, who come in so that they can work with others and interact. How is this fair to them? And I'm sorry, I don't buy a lot of the baloney productivity that people try to point to that say working from home, they're a lot more productive. Uh, I'm sure there are some who are, but I would argue that's more the exception than the rule. So I'm a, I'm a some might consider me a dinosaur here, Personally, I think this is more realism and a recognition of how human beings are and how they interact, as opposed to, again, trying to be new agey. Well, that ought to stimulate some conversation for you, Vivek. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I'm just laughing, listening to you, because like, okay, well, in that case, you know, we went remote, 100% remote in our India office in Pune. Uh, you know, it's uh, interesting. So we'll see, we'll see what happens in the next uh, few months. Uh, <laughs> But yes, uh, new age or not. So David, uh, first of all, thank you very much for coming on, uh, being part of it. There was just one more question left here with Pete Covella, but I think you answered most of it. Pete, I apologize if you, if you didn't get to the question directly. But from my perspective, David, this is very, very uh, interesting, very insightful. I think the points you make are, are what I would say timeless and ageless, right? None of the stuff goes out of style. And people keep thinking it's different this time. No, it's really not different this time. It's all the same thing. You had to think about first principles. You apply these first principles there. Like I said, the ageless and timeless. So I really appreciate it. I thoroughly enjoyed, uh, like I said, reading the book the first time, reading it again <laughs> last week to kind of make sure I refresh myself and uh, got some questions going. But uh, this is uh, incredibly powerful. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. And uh, you're welcome to stay online and listen to uh, Adrian and Hans and Scott. Uh, but uh, we will be ready to move on to Adrian now. So again, Dave, from our from everybody in this community, thank you so much. Well, you're very kind, uh, Vivek, and uh, hopefully it was interesting for everybody who was listening and whether they agree or disagree, hopefully they'll talk about it. 
Well, some of us will definitely be talking about the uh, work uh, remote versus not, but that's different matter. <laughs> <laughs> All the best, Vivek. Thanks. Thank you.